Hello, and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther, a podcast coming to you straight from the Walter P. Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University in the heart of the ever-loving city of Detroit. I am Dan Galadner, your host, and as always with me, Troy Eller English. Hi, Troy. Hey, Dan. What are you doing for the holidays? I have no idea. Excellent. Not a clue. (laughs) I'm sure you'll be doing presents and me seeing family and stuff like that. I think I might be hosting. Oh. But it's unclear. But you don't know yet? My family is, you know, we're yeah, we're we're lax, very lax. <laughs> okay, flexible, <laughs> flexible, and willing to spin on the dime right there. You can just get a canned ham and serve it. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awful. And a can cranberries. <laughs> Pop them out. There you go. Let's watch the Grinch. <laughs> Okay, on today's episode, it's all about the SEIU, one of the largest American labor unions. It represents almost 1.9 million workers in over 100 occupations in the U.S. and Canada. The largest sector of representation is healthcare workers, but also they represent public and property service workers. Um, what we all remember the SEIU is some grand figures like John Sweeney and Andy Stern, And also the mobilization and actions that their members took that we remember as well. What comes to mind is 925 and Justice for Janitors. A documentary actually just came out about 925 called 925, The Story of a Movement. And I hear rumors that the movie 925 is getting a part two. Um, Yeah, that campy fun movie was based on some serious issues women were facing in the offices of corporate America. And then there was Justice for Janitors. Uh, There were times of bloody confrontations with the police and sometimes militant actions by the workers all for the public to realize that, yes, there was an invisible workforce out there cleaning those offices while they slept and were being treated horribly and underpaid. And you know what? We have the SEIU Historical Collection here at the Ruther Library, and the SEIU just celebrated their 100th anniversary. So who better to talk about the SEIU and their 100th anniversary than our very own SEIU archivist, Sarah Lebowitz. She has done some very cool things to help the SEIU celebrate their 100th. And of course, she's going to talk about their collections and what are cool things in there. So sit back, relax, and listen to the SEIU. Hi, Sarah. How you doing? I'm good. How are you, Dan? Welcome back to our podcast. It's been a while. Yeah. Where have you been? Oh, you know, in the stacks, hiding in the shelves. In the shelves? Seriously. <laughs> Tucked away in every corner. Okay, but you've been really busy. People. You've been busy this, this year. Not only that we weren't in, but you were celebrating a huge anniversary for the SEIU. So they celebrated their 100th anniversary this year, is that correct? Last year and this year. And this year. So quick, quick, on the go here. Give us a few minutes to tell us what the 100 years of SEIU is. That's such a big question. I know. There are, there are so many different things that SEIU accomplished over the past 100 years, it's hard to pack it all down, but I will do my best. Um, it started in 1921 in Chicago. It was originally... 
organized around the janitors and custodians in some of the Chicago apartments. The precursor was the Chicago Flat Janitors Union, which is fun because it's the British version of apartment. For oh. those who don't know, flat. That's flat, okay. Is uh, It's not that they were 2D people. They were fully fleshed out. They were regular people. You don't have to put that in. <laughs> But no, they were not flat as in, yeah, two-dimensional. They were flat as in apartments. Um, So that's really where it started. And they started organizing across the entire United States from the get-go. They had New York, Chicago, California. There were some locals in Oregon. And they organized a variety of people. They would do amusement park workers, they would do theater workers, at one point they were doing bowling alley workers, they've done zoo workers, uh, derby, right, race, racehorse workers, stadiums, they've covered a lot of bases. Very nice. Thank you. You're welcome. That's an inside sports joke. That was a good one, yes. Um, So really over the past 100 years, SCIU has stayed true to its original organizing area, which is custodial workers across different kinds of organizations, buildings, institutions, um, but has also spread out to be more inclusive of other kinds of workers. And they have always been really dedicated to learning more about health um, in terms of protecting their workers' health So even in the 1930s and 40s, you see them promoting local health care buildings that they themselves created to service the union members and their families that had lower health care costs because they felt it was very important that their members had access to health care. So that's been a consistent thread, and that's something that's really great to see. I, I of course, am in a special position where I get to see the full history of SEAU, so it's great to see the cycle of them continuing to push healthcare forward, especially for their members and then also for the general public. Mm-hmm. Um, they did a lot of studies related to asbestos in schoolrooms along with other unions, but they were part of that because they had a lot of information about how their uh, members had passed away. So they were able to look at death reports and see it looks like all of these people have this similar issue and that was linked to asbestos being in school buildings. So that's not enough No, because it's not the entire history of SEIU, but it's, it's kind of SEIU in a nutshell. But uh, SEIU has really come into the forefront, I would say in the, since the 1980s, what kind of things that really put them in, you know, above the fold of the newspaper or what you're able to see SEIU as it is today. They definitely had a larger focus, or they had a large focus on healthcare, first of all. They started organizing in healthcare in the 30s and 40s um, in California, and that really took off, I think you can see in the 80s, with all of the organizing efforts against uh, corporations or companies like Beverly or Kaiser, which are still ongoing things happening. I mean, it it's cyclical, right? Like, it all returns back to the same organizations and having to push for updated rights and privileges. Um, But then you also 
in the mid-80s see the beginning of Justice for Janitors, which, again, it's, it's not that it's a new campaign for them. They started with janitors. That's something that they were originally fighting for, was for janitors to have better workplace uh, rights and better compensation. So in the 80s, you see them continue to push for that in this bigger organizing effort, Justice for Janitors, that really took off in the 90s. Um, And again, that's a a current fight as well. Justice for Janitors is still very active and very relevant, especially over the past year and a half, uh, with custodial staff being like highly at-risk members. And also in the 80s, you see them work toward uh, the needle stick protocol, which I think I potentially talked about my first time on the podcast. I had learned a little bit about it, but at this point I know a lot more. And they did incredible work in promoting safety measures for nurses and custodians who were at risk of being stabbed by needles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, it it seems like something uh, that should not have been a big controversy, but the health and safety department of SCIU really had to push and they put out a lot of information for both the general public and its own members about HIV AIDS and treating people like people still. Right. There is a documentary that came out called 5B that discusses the HIV AIDS ward in California. That was the first HIV AIDS ward and it was staffed by SCIU workers. So the documentary, though it does not explicitly reference SCIU, does feature SCIU members or uh, people who used to be part of that local in those hospitals, talking about the work that they did with HIV AIDS patients and how at the time people were scared of them. They treated them horribly. They didn't know how things were spread and they avoided them and treated them as less than people. So one thing that I think, I think people are more and more focusing on this. Um, Elizabeth Fow uh, recently wrote a paper on SEIU HIV AIDS healthcare workers. It's titled The Precarious Work of Care, OSHA AIDS and Women Healthcare Workers, 1983 to 2000. SEIU really wanted to demystify the disease and remind people that the people who were suffering were still people and deserved care and compassion. And it really hit home for them, I think, when some of the nurses who cared for those individuals were also nurses who contracted the disease through needle stick um, injuries. So that's part of what drove the needle stick protocol was it it started with these members truly caring for a community that people were kind of villainizing or trying to forget. So that's a part of SEIU history that is definitely still still talked about, uh, but I think it's important for people to realize that they weren't afraid to print information and try to educate people. And another point too is like that when you mentioned unions, the general public think 
strikes. Mm-hmm. They only want one thing, and that's more money mm-hmm. and more benefits that I can't get. So there's always this thing about the trade union movement in America is like, is that, but it really isn't. It's really talking about building a common interest through our society. And this is an example right here. Deadly disease, very questionable. People were dying and SEIU came forward and started educating more and more and more about what was happening. Yeah. And they weren't just protecting their own nurses. There was nothing in the contract that said it's only for SEIU members. Uh, We are the only ones who want protected uh, protection from needles. It was for anybody working in a hospital getting those little protective caps that get put onto needles when they're done being used so that when a room is being cleaned, nobody gets stabbed. There you go. So it is, it's, it's not, it comes about because of SCIU members, but it doesn't solely benefit only people in the union. Yeah, that's the usual thing with unions. It's like yeah. the things that they do for their members usually evolve into bettering our society. Yeah. All right, 100 years of SEIU, that's very exciting. It is. Um, what kind of things did you do to celebrate a centennial? Oh, <laughs> uh, when I first started in the position, I was very quickly brought on to consult on a few smaller historical projects that were kind of the lead up to what SEIU wanted to do for their big 100-year celebration, which they were going to coincide with their convention that happens every four years. So 2020 was the big date to have all of the anniversary stuff um, wrapped up. I worked on a very cool project trying to identify people both from locals, like more recently from locals and people historically from locals who were trailblazers, who did things that helped both the union, their communities, and just the people around them in general. Because it never happened. So the idea was they would make these QR code wristbands. And there was this giant list that a lot of people worked really hard to compile, myself included, that um, when you scanned the QR code, it would take you to a different person's profile. It would, it would pop up on your phone as one of these members. And basically, the goal was to have everybody have a different member so that there's kind of a personal connection, like you have a specific person who you're linked to, um, and you get to learn a little bit about them and the thing that they've done. And that was an effort to really connect current organizers with people who have come before them, even if it was not that far in the past. You know, five years is still a very long time Mm -hmm. in union time. 10 years is too. And SEIU wanted to make sure they were recognizing these people who worked really hard. And that was part of the historical research. Um, so there were a couple of researchers who came to SEI or came to the Ruther, came to SEIU at the Ruther. <laughs> uh, there were a couple of researchers who came to the Ruther specifically to go through the SEIU publications to sift through all of this material oh. to find these stories of people because the publications are fantastic. They have these like highlighted pieces on the, the general membership, the rank and file members. So they were sifting through all of these, pulling this information, grabbing people's names, grabbing the photos that they could. And then if they needed more information on that person, when they were gone, they would reconnect with me because I had pulled all of the material for them and told them, you know, how to go through and how 
I was trying to find stuff and using the the hierarchy of like, okay, look in the convention proceedings first, find the big ticket things, then figure out what year it was. Once you know what year it is, look in that publication for that year. If you know what local it is, see if we have the local and find the year. Then you can find the specific people who helped push those things forward. So teaching them the way that I was trying to frame it to sure. figure out how to get people um, recognized for the, the stuff that they did. So that was one of the big projects. Another one was a video. It was going to be maybe like a six to seven minute video that wove a narrative around past and present to, again, reconnect members with the stuff that's happened before and show them that it's always been hard. Winning rights has never been an easy thing. Um, and there are many people who have come before them who have had to struggle through the same kinds of things that they're struggling through. So creating this sense of like, you're not alone. This is something that's been happening for a long time and it feels so long and hard when you're in it. But when you come out of it with a win, you've just changed the lives of many, many other people. So there was a narrative that we were crafting around these big historical moments for SCIU across the decades. Um, and I did a lot of research on that. I did research in the manuscript collections, the president's records. I used the SEIU photographs pretty heavily. I used the SEIU publications so that I could find those stories. I used the convention proceedings myself to figure out, okay, what were the things they were talking about? Where can I pinpoint these big moments that shifted the course of SEIU in some way, shape, or form? So those were, the, those were the big projects. And then mm -hmm. we were going to have the convention in April of 2020 in Chicago. That's where BSEIU started, right? B for building. They dropped the B in the 1960s so that they could be more inclusive of service employees in general. Okay. I also heard that you did a lot of tweeting. <laughs> so that was this year. Um, <laughs> the convention, yes, because we... We're not able to have the convention because of the pandemic. We never really saw those projects come to fruition, but I didn't want the anniversary to go by without doing anything. And the official anniversary is April 23rd. So it was April 23rd, 1921, when SEIU got its official charter from AFL-CIO, which at that point was not AFL-CIO yet, but you know what I mean. Well, you know what you're talking about. Um, so April 23rd, 2021 was the true centennial. It was the true 100 year anniversary. And from your recommendation, Dan, I took on a project that was entirely of my own making where I decided, wow, wouldn't it be a great idea to tweet a hundred tweets for SEIU's 100 year anniversary. And my goal was to try to tweet them all within one month. <laughs> <laughs> which very quickly became three months uh, as I lost a little bit of steam toward the end. But I had a hashtag. It was hashtag SEIU 100 years, 100 tweets. And I started at the inception of the union and I think I made it to the 90s. Not bad. And I successfully hit 100 tweets uh, on June 4th. <laughs> so from from uh, April 1st to June 4th, 
I tweeted 100 tweets. Uh, and I'd do it again. No, I would I, not. I don't think you would. No, no, no. Um, what you did, though, was, and with the SEIU, is you, you did exactly what we're supposed to be doing as archivists, as well as archivists working for a labor organization. Expose the past to the present so the future can build. And with these uh, projects before tweeting, the, the video and the QR codes, that's, that's inclusive. That creates the community. Right? That's, that's what labor history needs to do for not only union members and, rank and, f and other rank and file, but general public. And by tweeting those hundreds, you actually gave it a more leverage outside of the bubble of SEIU. So kudos to you. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's that's supposed to be do. But you, you did a lot of research and a lot of investigation. How big is the SEIU collection? For some people who've never been to the Ruther or don't know, I mean, is it small collections? Is it large? I mean, are we talking thousands of feet or a couple hundred? I would say it's small, medium. Small, medium. Yeah. Kind of like medium rare on a steak. Kind of like medium rare on a steak. It's not the biggest collection at the Ruther, but it's also not the smallest collection at the Ruther. Um, it's around 1,000 linear feet. And for those of you who don't count things in linear feet because you're a normal person, <laughs> uh, it's basically like a storage box size. Yeah. A small storage box that's, what is it, 16 inches by something. By 14. You can go to Staples and you can get a box that will hold paper. And those are, that's a linear foot, basically. Yeah. So it's, it's around the ballpark of 1,000 linear feet. Not all of that is processed, um, but the vast majority of it is. And the really big collections that we have within SEIU that are open are the SEIU photographs, the SEIU publications, and then the records of different SEIU presidents, including Sweeney. Of course. Of course. And all right, so you just mentioned like the big things. Now, you were doing all this research, you were digging around. Um, how about some of the people, those individuals, that maybe had a place in history of SEIU, but have been kind of forgotten? Give us one example of someone who you think really needs to be shed, shed the light again into the eyes of history. So one thing, I'll, I'll say this as a caveat beforehand. I think there are a lot of really influential people throughout SEIU's history, and one thing I also think is incredibly important is that members see themselves reflected in the leadership that's come before them. So making sure that there's representation for any single member of SEIU to look and say, we've been here for a long time. Um, so with that caveat, uh, there are maybe two people who I am very fond of, okay, and both of them are very early SEIU people. Uh, one of them is Tom Young, um, or Thomas Young, who was one of the founding members of Local 32B, which in, I think, the 70s, combined with Local 32J, which was originally the, like, women's version of 32B, um, they combined together to make 32BJ, which is now one of the biggest SEIU locals, especially in New York. Um, so he was one of the founding members, and he was an immigrant from the West Indies. And uh, we have some oral histories from him that you, the transcripts are available online. And anyone I've spoken to about him who ever got the chance to meet him 
only talked about what a wonderful man he was. Uh, he was a very like thoughtful and kind person. He functioned as, at one point, the vice president of 32B, and then he was the secretary for a while. We have the 32B publications, so I get to go back and read the things that he wrote about the things that were happening, um, both for the union and in the country at the time. As a, uh, an immigrant from the West Indies, he does speak in that publication about the issues that black and African-American people were facing in the United States in the 1930s and the 1940s. And he talks about it very openly and very directly and talks about how it's the job of both people and the union to make sure that they're fighting for the rights of their fellow union members. Um, so he's somebody who, if you know the union history, he's definitely not hidden. Um, He's very lauded, and there's the whole story about him as a younger man being fired from his elevator job for um, saying, oh, for not saying down, please. He That was like the script that they were supposed to use. He maybe added one or two additional words in, and the business owner thought that that was enough to fire him, but it was actually because he was engaging in union activity with some of the other eventual co-founders of 32B. Um, so he's one person. And then another person who I'm very, very intrigued by is Elizabeth Grady, who was the president of the school janitresses in Chicago. Um, she was one of the founding members of BSEIU in 1921. She was an older woman who uh, also pushed BSEIU to organize women and basically said, you can't allow businesses to push you out by hiring women in at lower wages. Mm -hmm. You can force them to hire women in at equal wages and then they won't be able to push you out. So it was, it was talking about wage equality for women but framing it in a way of like, unless you want your job to be taken by women, you should fight for us to have equal wages too, because otherwise you're going to get undercut. Interesting. interesting. So um, some of her writing is in the public safety publication that SEIU, well, BSEIU at the time started putting out, which uh, is also available online because of a digitization project that I did. Oh. So you can read some of the stuff that she wrote about, um, women and some of the things that other people wrote about her and how she kind of pushed forward this agenda of making sure that women had a place in the union. She sounds fascinating. I wish I could find out more about her. Uh, the name seems to have been very common and I don't know when she was born <laughs> or that much else about her, but uh, those are two members. And then some of the original members of the Chicago Flat Janitors Union, those are more where it's it's hard to find like biographical history from people from around that time mm -hmm. just because it wasn't, you can do so much with census records, but if you don't know where they're originally coming from, you can't really trace them. Um, it, BSEIU started as a union that was founded by like the, it was a first generation American and then a lot of immigrants who were in Chicago at the time. So sometimes it's hard to track down where people 
we're coming from to be able to find that biographical information. Well, that's why we have researchers doing that stuff. Yes. Yes, we just gather it and we make sure that they can find it. Yeah. Speaking of which, the, the photo collection is so well organized, very well labeled, right? Um, I'm just wondering, I mean, you use it constantly. I use it all the time. So, so what kind of things can people find in a photo collection? Will they be able to find these people you talked about? Or will they be able to find really cool photographs uh, of Justice for Janitors? What, what can you find in there? Yes. Okay. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is very well organized, and that, that is thanks to SEIU archivists who came before me. So that's going to be Gavin Strassel, Alexandra Orchard, and Lewis Jones, um, I'm I'm fourth in the line of SEIU archivists. And truly, you can find photos related to most of the things that SEIU has worked on for the past 100 years. Um, it is very well organized. If you know what local you're looking for, or if you know what the campaign name was, you will find, it's very likely you will find photos of it. It buffs out, it's definitely stronger post-1960s, but... There are still photos of the locals going back to, I think, the early, the early days of SCIU. Um, so you can definitely find the. Um, basically, there's a whole portion that covers the people who were more uh, influential in the union post 1970. There are also photos of famous people like. Uh, I think um, Willie Nelson is in the SEIU photographs in a couple of them. There's, uh, oh, what's So, like, you can find both individuals from the union, but you can also find, like, Ted Danson is in some of the SEIU photographs. Uh, people like, um, yeah, like Martin Sheen, who, uh, Jane Fonda. I was about to say. Celebrities who have used their platform to push forward the the rights of working people. You can see them in these photos, and it's kind of cool because you you can truly see how long they've been doing this work and the things that they've been willing to risk. Right. Um, Speaking of Jane Fonda, we have to throw this in real quick because oh, yeah. this is a good one. Why is, for those who don't know, of course we all know and some of our listeners know, why is Jane Fonda in the photo collection of the SCIU? Because, thank you so much for asking, Dan. This is one of the other big projects that people have been uh, working on over the past year. Probably Jane Fonda is connected to the creation of the movie 9 to 5. Very famous movie, Dolly Parton. Um, Lily Tomlin. Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda was also in the movie. But before it was the movie, it was the organization, 9 to 5. Um, and the reason Jane Fonda was involved is because she was friends with the original founder of 925, Karen Nussbaum. They did, I think they were in um, Vietnam. Karen Nussbaum, who in the early 1970s, along with women like um, Ellen Cassidy, Ann Hill, Bonnie Layden, there are a number of other women who are involved, uh, but they started this organization, 925, to organize clerical workers in the Boston area. And it was one of the first times that it had, there had been an effort to specifically focus on w women in the workplace in those clerical kind of jobs. I think people sometimes call them pink collar jobs now. So this was one of those like early efforts to focus on 
fighting for the rights of the women who are in these positions. So it was an independent organization. And then in the mid to late 1970s, SEIU kind of helped train leadership and the members in how to organize or how to distribute their message in a different way because SEIU obviously has a long history of organizing and was having some successes. Um, so they, they kind of stepped in and helped work with this group to buff them up a little bit. And then they created a uh, District 925 and Local 925 that was actually part of SEIU. So it started as the organization that still exists, 925, but it kind of got incepted into some of the inner working of SEIU um, partly due to the president at the time wanting to make sure that women had a voice and that they were including these new kinds of organizers in SEIU to help move SEIU forward to make sure that they were continuing to be innovative. So based off of the stories that Karen collected from these secretarial workers, uh, I think the stories that she like invited Jane Fonda to a meeting Somewhere, it might have been Cleveland or Cincinnati, but it was in Ohio. It was one of the local 925, District 925 groups, and they were sharing these horrible stories and talking about the things that they would do to their bosses, and that was the basis for that scene where they imagine all of the awful things that they can do. So that's where the movie 925 comes from, um, and that's why Jane Fonda is represented in this collection because she was so intricately tied with the whole movement she became a spokeswoman mm -hmm. for the movement like they did a tour uh during the movie premiere around the country talking about women's rights and making sure that people knew that there was an organization that was looking out for people who were very frequently taken advantage of in a variety of ways See, awesome awesome stuff this is this is a great collection that you have that you maintain um, what other, what, so you maintain this great collection. What do you see yourself doing in the future to help build from this hundred years? Any projects you're working on, kind of collections you would love to collect into the Ruther Library? What kind of things like that would you like to, like to do? I, I'm currently working on one very long-term project to digitize as much of the SEIU publication material as I can and make it accessible to people. So I digitized like three bound volumes of SEIU publications that are probably like all together, maybe each one is around 500 to 800 pages. I don't remember because it felt like a thousand years ago <laughs> and I did it like two hours at a time. So it felt like it went on forever. Um, but I finished the earliest publication that we have, which is the public safety that's like the late 1920s. Um, I think I did the earliest 32B that we have publication. And then I did, my test one was from the 70s. I haven't put that one up yet, but the graphics in all of them are great. I mean, they, they really do show you how people were trying to communicate with membership and like what different tactics they were using to talk to members at the time. So that's one big project that I would love to complete all the way, get all of those publications up and make them accessible to people so that they can, on their own time, go through their own history. And again, see themselves represented in the people who have been part of SEIU since like 
the 60s, the 50s, even, I mean, for most people, probably the 1920s. Um, I think that's a really important thing, being able to see yourself in the in the organizational history of the place that you are like working for or working with to improve things. And then an area that I would like to collect more on would definitely be all of the stuff happening around Fight for 15. I think that that's an incredibly important part of labor history right now. It's gone on for a very long time. Um, and it's an attempt to, again, organize and protect people who are frequently taken advantage of, fast food workers who don't always have, well, very rarely have people who care about them in the places that they work. So that's one area that I would really like to try to focus on in the future is collecting on on that and then just continuing to collect on the records that we currently have, making sure that all of the different the different membership of SEIU is um, represented. So making sure we have healthcare workers, building workers. I mean, there was this whole uh, issue around window washers recently, and SEIU has represented them as well since the 1920s. So like, there's longevity in the people who SEIU has fought for, making sure that that is also high, like very documented. Sarah, once again, you give us a great interview, and you tell us all about SEIU. Did I? We do appreciate it. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. You ready, ladies and gentlemen? No, but let's do it anyway. Okay, we can do it anyway. I love coffee, I love tea. I love the Java Java and it loves me. Go, oh, I love coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Ah. I love Java, sweet and hot. Oops, Mr. Moto, I'm a coffee pot. Shoot me the pot and I'll pour me a shot. You know they don't do that anymore in acapella. Acapella? Singing? It's all, yeah, pop music. And incorporated in dance and stuff like that and all sorts of crazy stuff. Oh yeah, it's basically like show choir. <laughs>